0: We're going to be talking about the ramifications of pornography addiction as I am joined by pornography expert Joshua Shea. Joshua is an author, a certified betrayal trauma coach, as well as a pornography addiction expert on the mission to get the world talking about pornography addiction and the potential ramifications of being a pornography addict. He is a former addict himself, so he has firsthand experience. So, Joshua, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for me in- inviting me onto your show. I appreciate it.
0: Well, why don't you start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, as mentioned, my name is Joshua Shea. I am from Central Maine. I have lived here most of my life. And the reason i 'm on your show is because of porn addiction, and that the story of my relationship with porn addiction started as an addict when I was a kid. I became addicted around twelve years old. Um, I fully believe that it was a response to trauma that I suffered uh, abuse I suffered at the hands of a babysitter when I was younger um, mental emotional you know sexual um and I think that I didn't have the right coping skills so around 12 years old I discovered pornography a little bit later at 14 years old I discovered alcohol and then from 12 14 years old straight up to when I was 37 and got my butt into recovery um no matter where I was in my life uh alcohol and porn were the two things that I could always count on. They were the two things that were always there for me. Didn't matter where I was in my life. And when I finally, you know, when push came to shove, I, I lost my job uh, because of the way I was acting at the, the last year or so of my addictions. And, uh, I, I, and I lost my job at a company that I was a quarter owner of. So it was kind of a big deal. Um, I wasn't being as close with my family as I'd hoped. Uh, I was just really getting to a bad, bad spot. And um, I ended up essentially uh, being forced into first alcohol rehab back in 2014. Uh, I had, uh, I have never relapsed. I'll I'll throw that out there right now. So I'm almost eight years sober at this point. And uh, while I was there, um, after several weeks, my case manager asked me if I would talk to a sex addiction therapist, um, which seemed weird to me because I know I looked at porn, but I just thought that was a result of me getting too drunk and making bad choices. But um, I talked to this this sex addiction therapist, and he proved to me and showed me that you know porn addiction is a real thing that I had been dealing with it for even longer than my alcohol problem. And when you look over the course of my life, it caused far more problems than the alcohol and predated the alcohol and really was the thing that controlled my life so I I got my act together through therapy through rehab and because I was a uh, journalist in my regular life newspaper writer although I, I did eventually end up being a publisher of a magazine um I decided that I would do what I do best, which is right. And so I ended up writing my story because when I tried to find resources about porn addiction, the only stuff I could find was like college level written by, uh, you know, doctors and professors. And, you know, while I could work my way through that, uh, I, I didn't have a, it was hard to understand. And, and I understand that most people who dealt deal with this, uh, probably are never going to do that kind of research if they can't find it on Amazon or find it at their bookstore, they're not going to read it. So I decided to start creating resources for people who are dealing with porn addiction. Um, that was my first book. And my second book ended up, uh, being about the spouses who have to deal with the porn addiction because that's a very big deal as well. In most cases, uh, the, the addict, whether it's a man or a woman, hides their porn addiction from their partner. And that causes a lot of trauma within their partner. So it's just a big mess. And, and, and my life was a big mess. And I'm just trying to, I don't know, pay it forward, pay it back. I was lucky enough to get this albatross off my back. And uh, now I want to help other people because ultimately I wonder if there's anything that, you know, eight-year-old Josh could have heard or 15-year-old Josh or 20-year-old Josh. Is there anything that I could have been told that would have helped me not become an addict of pornography? And all I'm doing is hoping that maybe I'm helping some people the way that I, I didn't have those resources. So that's what brings me to you today is to, to talk to your listenership about this. And again, I thank you for letting me do that. There's a lot of people out there who are still afraid of this subject, still see it as taboo, can't, you know, look at the fact that we can, as two adults, have a conversation about it. They're still so afraid of it. And that's, that's the kind of stigma we have to break down if we're going to address this problem.
0: Well, that's why I decided to have you on. So talk about, well, how do you actually know you're addicted? And, and what's what's wrong with looking at porn? I mean, just because okay. somebody watches, watches it, does that mean that they are addicted?
1: Nope. Nope. Just like if somebody drinks, they're not an alcoholic. Um, you know, I can't drink like a normal person. But I know plenty of people who can. My wife can have a glass of wine or two, and she's fine. Um, You know, she can put half a bottle of wine away. I could never do that with alcohol. Uh, I could never do that with pornography. But when I go to a casino, I can walk away. When I go to a buffet, I can walk away. Things that are uh, addictive substances for other people aren't for me. So uh, obviously, there are plenty of people, far more people, Uh, do not have porn addictions and look at porn. Um, Latest statistics that I saw, which were from just before the pandemic, said that 80% of men under 50 years old look at porn at least once a month. And 60% of women under 50 years old look at porn at least once a month. So obviously people are looking and it's not destroying society. And hopefully it won't. Um, So... What is the bad thing about looking at pornography, even from a non-addict non, uh, non um, addict standpoint? Um, I'm not going to get into the morality of it because I think that can be all over the map, um, and, and I don't think it's good to shame anybody or embarrass them. So leaving the moral question of is looking at pornography okay to the side, um, I think that the story that illustrates the issue with pornography the most uh, comes from... When I did one of my last uh, college presentations before the pandemic started, it was to a small group at a health center. It was a woman's sexuality group, and I gave my typical presentation, and then I went to the Q&A section. And there was one woman, she was probably about 19, very, very quiet girl, didn't say much. She raised her hand and said, have you talked to women our age, you know, 18, 19, 20? Have you talked to them and heard that they don't want to have sex with virgin guys? And I looked at her and I said, no, I've never heard this. What does this have to do with pornography? And she said, well, you just told us that a guy usually sees pornography for the first time around nine years old, maybe 10 years old, uh, at least here in America. And they, by age 12 or 13, the average boy is watching multiple times a week. And as she said, as she started to repeat my statistics back to me, I realized where she was going with this. And I have had many conversations with women in this age group since, and they have, they have confirmed this. It's that Young men are growing up in this society watching pornography and not just watching it, but learning from it. If you're 12, 13 years old and you use pornography, say three, four times a week, or let's say you look at 10 clips a week, 10 little movies. um, Think about at 12 years old, when you're 17, 18, how much pornography have you consumed? And even if it's the most vanilla, you know, straight ahead, typical porn you can find, one man, one woman, you know, nothing crazy, you're still going to probably see the man saying very nasty things to the woman you're probably going to uh, see him grab her by the neck at some point. He's going to bend her like a pretzel. He's going to demean her. And she doesn't do that to him and that doesn't even talk about how these you know clips all end um, in, in you know on, on the girl's face, which is not how normal people you know do it usually. And I and for these young guys, these these 12, 13, 14, 15 year old guys, who don't end up with a girlfriend, who don't end up having sex before they go to college, um, what are they supposed to believe sex is like? You know, for people like me, and I'm guessing people like you who have been in normal sexual relationships, have been, you know, understand what a normal sexual relationship is, how are these guys supposed to know that? Porn has been their sex ed. And I have talked with many uh, young women in this college age group now, and they all say that, you know, when a, even when a guy says, you know, I've not done this a lot, or a guy says they're a virgin, they're like, that's okay, and then most of the time, The moment they start in whatever the guy thinks is, you know, the the official starting line of having sex, he pushes her down onto the bed or he grabs her by the neck or starts calling her names that she had never heard before because he thinks, you know, she wants to, she wants to be called a dirty slut, which I've still never met the girl in real life who likes that and. These guys are brainwashed by pornography. So a lot of these women, when they find out that the 18, 19 year old guy is a virgin, they don't want to have sex with them because they don't want to retrain them. They don't want to have to be like, hey, no, you can't act like Ron Jeremy or John Holmes or one of these porn stars. This is not what this is like. But how are these guys supposed to know that pornography is not a documentary or not a reality show if that's what they've been feasting on regularly? So this story illustrates to me that we have a generation of young men who are growing up thinking that, and I'm not talking about love, I'm not talking about deep, deep emotions, just the act of having sex with another person. Uh, Their mind has been warped by the pornography they've watched. They may... Uh, if they meet some of these women along the way, they may miss opportunities because they're acting like what they've seen on the television screen. And like nothing to do with addiction there. It's just that we are raising young men and young women to, to another degree on pornography. They have unfettered access and they've always had unfettered access to it. When I was a kid, I had to hope I found a magazine or I had to, you know, try to get a a VHS tape recorded from uh, somebody or or see if a video store would let me have it. Well, these days, we put a smartphone into every 10-year-old's hand and send them away. And, you know, if you can and not to be crude but if you can spell you know woman screws horse you can watch that you can watch whatever you can spell these days because there's so much pornography out there and we don't think about what that's doing to the youngest generation um, the generation that grew up with the internet uh, they're kind of that their oldest age right now is about 30 32 years old they don't remember a world before it there was a study done in 2018 Uh, of men in America, all ages, all races, religions, whatnot. And what they found was that in the 18 to 30-year-old male group, almost a third said they either had a problem by watching too much pornography, that they were developing into an addict, or that they had a full-blown addiction. Now, granted, this is self-reporting, so it might not be 100% accurate, but I think that this shows you that there is a problem among younger men, because we've measured that, I think if we went further out, we could see that there's a problem among everybody. But we now know, based on facts and statistics, that young men have an issue with pornography in this society. And I am not so much anti-porn as I am pro-healthy sexuality. And the attitudes that our young men have are not healthy, by and large. And that's, the, that's part of the problem with pornography. You don't want an unhealthy sexual society. Unhealthy sexual societies don't last very long. I just urge you to go look at the ancient Romans or ancient Greeks. Once they started getting really weird with the orgies and other things, their civilizations fell um, because sex is a powerful, powerful thing. And I think the technology that we have in our hands today, it's only been in our hands 20, 25 years. Our brains have not evolved to handle this kind of technology yet. So we have to stop everything and say, hey, what is this doing to us? What is this doing to our people? And among the worst of them, yes, it is full-blown pornography addiction. Um, It's much like every other addiction. It is in the mind, it is, you know, porn addiction isn't in the crotch, food addiction isn't in the stomach. So, you know, cocaine addiction isn't in the nose. It's all in the head. Uh, Addiction is uh, just a symptom Of a coping mechanism to deal with something worse and with pornography it's almost always unresolved trauma, usually emotional trauma or sexual trauma from being a kid and because it's easy as a kid to get your hand on pornography these days it's easier to see porn than to get a beer. So when kids need to self-soothe because their lives are tough and they don't have the, the survival skills, they don't know how to go find resources, they turn to porn because it makes them feel better. And that's, that's the problem in our society is we're not, uh, I don't want to say teaching our, our people how to use porn, but we are not even talking about it and saying, hey, you know, one out of five guys ends up with a real problem with this. And that number is only getting worse. So let's talk about this. That's why I'm here. That's what I do day after day is I just try to get people to talk about this. So there were fewer me's out in the world because I didn't want to end up this way, but maybe I can help other people not end up that way.
0: Well, let's talk about the pandemic. How do you think the pandemic has changed the landscape of online pornography?
1: Oh boy, it is, it is huge. Um, my most recent book looks at the first three months of the pandemic being uh, March, April, and May of 2020. And if you do things like, and for, from the consumer end of the people who watch, you look at some countries like uh, India or Italy, the traffic on Pornhub, for instance, from uh, April 2019 to April, 2020, 60 to 70% more people in some countries were looking at porn every day. Uh, So it it, it was consumed like never before. When you have it being consumed like never before, you need more of a supply. And a website called OnlyFans was there to pick up that slack. Uh, OnlyFans has been out five or six years for those people who don't know about it. Um, it's kind of like Facebook meets Etsy, uh, as strange as that sounds. Where people can create, they create a page that's their own homepage, kind of like on Facebook but they can uh, put up adult photography or, or adult clips of themselves. And some people do it at a very PG level, wearing, you know, bra panties or wearing little shorts if they're a guy. And some people go full on triple X on it and are having, you know, crazy, crazy sex um, and, and selling it to people. You know, a lot of times they tempt them to get, get onto their page and then they, you know, get them into them and then they keep selling uh, more and more content to them. Now, what's interesting about this is that first of all, um, the most recent stat we have is the um, CEO of OnlyFans a few weeks back uh, making a statement to the press said that they had over 2 million uh, content producers, 2 million people making pornography on their website. If you go back, he also back around, he he back around early 2020, he said that as of January 1st, 2020, they had 300,000 people making pornography on their website. So if you take just this one website of OnlyFans, uh, based on what the CEO has said, and I have no reason to believe he's wrong based on what I've seen with my own eyes, is that million people, mostly all under the age of 30, mostly all under the age of 25, have taken to creating pornography and selling it on the internet. And we can say, well, they've got to make ends meet. They've got to pay the rent. They've got to do this. And and, and I'm sure some people do. And I absolutely understand that. But what scares me about the pandemic and what I think the long-term effects of the pandemic will be, isn't gonna be on how much we watched porn or how much how many new people started watching porn because as, as the uh, lockdowns started to lift, as people could go back to school, go back to work, uh, you could track website stats. There were a bunch of different companies that do that. And the consuming numbers started to go down. People were going to work instead of looking at porn. People were doing other things. They weren't locked in their house anymore. What we didn't see go down are the amount of people who are making porn. Um, That number is still going up. And when I was writing my book, uh, the book took about six, eight weeks to write. And I talked with several people who had uh, been on OnlyFans and had been cam models for a very long time. These are the people who saw it as their job, as their business. They did it for the money. And then I talked to a bunch of rookies who just started doing it at the beginning of the pandemic. And they were like, I heard there's good money. I heard there's good money. I then interviewed them again six to eight weeks later to find out what was going on. The people who were the veterans on those sites, they talked about how the consumer was changing and their attitude with every, you know, every week that the pandemic went on, people seemed to get more depressed or scared. And it was interesting to hear about the consumers on that end, but these, these producers, these longtime makers of pornography, of their own pornography, they really hadn't changed at all. But when I talked to the rookies, it was actually kind of scary talking to some of these, you know, guys and girls who were 18, 20, 22, you know, they, they were like, yeah, I'm making great money, but you know, what's cool is that, you know, I jump on here and I feel like I have more friends than I've ever had before, or, you know, I've never been able to get, I can't get guys to date me. I can't get a girl to look at me. And suddenly I've got them giving me huge amounts of money and paying attention to me. And I remember one girl saying that, you know, she broke up with her boyfriend because she started doing only fans but since then she's gotten three marriage proposals from different guys around the world and what i was hearing from these people uh these young people who were new at it um was absolute addiction they were talking about a dopamine rush they were talking about the feelings they got being similar to somebody who looks at porn or somebody who snorts coke or you know has a, has an eating disorder um somebody who wasn't healthy. And in, in listening to these young men and young women, I I'm flat out scared for them because, you know, I don't think it's been identified yet that making pornography can be addictive, but if consuming it can be addictive, why can't making it be addictive? And I really wonder if some of these you know, people who are 20, 25 years old now, are they still going to be online 20 years from now? Are they going to be 40, 45 years old making pornography because that's how they get high? And I don't think without this pandemic that we would have seen so many people uh, experiment with making and selling their own pornography. Um, that's what I think that the long-term, when we look back, legacy of this pandemic is going to be.
0: Do you feel like porn addiction is ever the fault of the person's partner who is addicted?
1: No, it never is. And and the unfortunate thing, and I've begun to uh, do more coaching and, and do more writing for the partners because so many of the partners think that they are the problem. Because what often happens in addiction, and this is true with every addiction, that the libido drops. So think about it. If you've been married to a guy or a girl for 10 years, and over the last three, four years, the sex is starting to slow down. And in the last year, it's never even happening. And, you know, he just always has a headache or she always has some excuse to not have sex. And then you find out that five, six times a week, they're spending an hour or two sitting in front of a computer looking at pornography. And yeah, you can hear that they have a problem, but most people who are blindsided by finding out their partner has an addiction, they immediately think, what did I do? Was I not good enough in bed? Was I not sexy enough? Did, did, was I not, you know, uh, wild enough? Why wasn't I enough for this person? And the, the thing is, you could never be enough because it's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. It, it's, it sucks that you're there and you're going through it. But in my instance, you know, I became a porn addict 12, 13 years old. I met my wife when I was 26. Um, she found out that I was a, uh, uh, an addict at 37. So I hid it from her successfully for 11 years, and you know, she could say, "Oh my goodness, I didn't know he was an addict," and and I made that, I made this happen. And I have a lot of clients who do start out that way, but I always tell them on my own from my own story. I was an addict for 12 years before I met my wife. Even though I didn't know it was porn addiction, I know I was addicted. How could my wife have anything to do with my addiction if I was an addict for 10 years before meeting her? It's—it's She can't. It's impossible. And that's the thing is that so many of us who are porn addicts or are recovering porn addicts, these seeds were planted in our youth. You know, we found pornography to be our escape, the way other people find video games, the way some people use drugs. we found pornography to be our escape. It's what calmed the storm in our brain. When I was using pornography, it wasn't, you know, strictly a sex thing. I want to get off. And and this is all about me. It was about trying to calm my mind, trying to de-stress, trying to feel like I was taking control of my life. And I know for people who aren't addicts, it's hard to understand that. Um, But it really is. It's like a magnet that just draws you to it. And for 12 years before meeting her, pornography was the one thing that always made me feel better, along with alcohol, um, to a lesser degree. Pornography, no matter whether I had a girlfriend or I didn't, or whether I was in school or whether I had a job, pornography was always there and it always made me feel better. I could count on that. It was the only thing I could count on. It wasn't about an orgasm. It wasn't about getting off. There was a lot of times I looked at porn that there wasn't any getting off to it. It was about looking. It was about having that, you know, little tickle or little, you know, scratch in my pleasure centers, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the serotonin. It was about getting all of that calmed down And so pornography could do that for me. Well, I also found out, you know, in my late 30s, early 40s, a whole lot of therapy can do that, too, Um, because what you need to do is you need to deal with not just the addiction. And when I when I coach porn addicts, I tell them right up front. Only 25% of this is your addiction. We're going to work on how to deal with your triggers, what to do when you feel that itch coming on that you've got to use, how to stop using porn. We are going to talk about that. But 75% of the work is about getting through the unresolved abuse, the unresolved trauma of, the, of your youth. And I can tell you firsthand that when you figure out why you became an addict And when you deal with the circumstances of why you became an addict and you come to peace or get some closure with why you became an addict, it turns out you don't need the addiction nearly as much. And I give people the metaphor of imagine you have a giant cut on your arm. That cut is the trauma. So what do you do? You get a bunch of band-aids and you put it over the cut. Those Band-Aids are your addiction. They hide that trauma. The world doesn't see it. Um, And, and, you know, you're hiding it from everybody. But the Band-Aids don't actually fix anything. There's no medicine in Band-Aids. All they do is hide the wound. And if you are going to tend to the wound, you have to take those band-aids off and you have to tend to the wound. You have to see what's going on in that wound. If you fix the wound, if you let it heal, if you get it to heal, well, you no longer need band-aids. And that's the case with the addiction. I figured out why I became a porn addict and an alcoholic. I went through you know, all of that hard work of facing the abuse that I had when I was young and, and, and other types of uh, uh, mental abuse or emotional abuse I suffered at the hands of some other people. I finally did the hard work of going through that and sorting it out and processing it. And once I did that, I have never felt the pull towards pornography or the pull towards alcohol like I did when I was an addict. Yep. Seven, eight years later, I still get little triggers. And, you know, I I went to uh, Fenway Park in Boston for the first time in about 10 years, a couple weeks back when they were in the playoffs. And I was walking down the street with my brother who doesn't have any problems like this. And he, he said to me, you look like you're fiending for a drink. And I was like, yes, I am, because I haven't been to a Major League Baseball Park in 10 years. And I'm walking down this street towards Fenway Park, and I see a place that I used to drink a lot. And I see another bar, and I see another bar, and I see another bar. I would have guessed when I used to go to Fenway Park, when I when I drank a lot, I would have guessed I went into two bars. Walking around the stadium, I probably recognized 10 bars. Uh, and that's from 10 years ago. Who knows how many have closed? That's that's a trigger. That's the feeling that I want to use. Um, And I have the tools to fight that. But why I became an alcoholic, I figured out long, long ago. So in my day-to-day life, I don't have those triggers. I don't have those cravings. And the further you get away from them, the easier it gets.
0: What advice would you give someone partner and tell them to do? If they, after, you know, they find out that they're, partner's an addict, what what should they do?
1: Well, you can really do, you know, only a couple things. Um, you can address it with the partner or you can not address it. If you choose not to address it, then life is going to keep going on as it is, and or it's going to get worse because addiction does get worse no matter what the addiction is. And if you've decided that, then you know, good luck. Strap in, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Um, Most cases, the partner will uh, confront the, the addict. And I urge people to, you know, not just make it a big blow up. Because when you think about it, if you go at somebody shaking your finger and say, I know you do this, I know you do this, what's wrong with you? well, that person doesn't feel safe. That person isn't going to open up. That person uh, is going to feel shamed and very little, and they probably already know they have a problem. And now that you know, they feel even worse. So I always urge people uh, and partners very early on, you may be absolutely disgusted by what they looked at. You may make your skin crawl that they were up, up at night doing that or doing that at the house while you were gone. Please try not to judge them overly too much because addiction is an illness. It's a brain illness. I mean, it's proven at this point that it is a scientific medical illness. And they are sick people, they are not just recreational users. And I have to tell the partners of porn addicts you know, in some ways, you may be in a better position because most people who use pornography out there they're just recreational they haven't you know rotted their pleasure centers or anything like that what they use pornography for is what the addicts partners fear that they are choosing pornography over them, whether it's a guy or a girl or, you know, something in between these days. Um, If they choose to utilize pornography for self-pleasuring and they have a partner and, and they choose the pornography, that can be very demeaning. That can be very demoralizing. That can make you wonder what's wrong. Um, That's because that person is consciously choosing to, get off by themselves than, w- than with you. I can understand how that's bothersome. But when it comes to addiction, it's not about getting off. It's about stopping that storm in your brain, stopping how rough it feels, and and, and, and trying to uh, trying to just get everything under control. You're not trying to, you know, be some sexual Lothario or, 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 you know, see how crazy you can make it. You're just looking for peace, just like anybody who is an alcoholic or, or has any addiction. It's it's about trying to find peace in your mind. So understand that with your partner. If, if they are an addict, they are sick. They are a sick person. And what you are going to find is that Uh, in about a quarter of the cases, when you confront somebody about being a porn addict, they will just flat out say, oh, thank God, thank God, you know, now I can come clean. I need help. I have to do something about this. That was a little bit how I was um, in in, in my scenario that I was glad I was finally found out. I, I didn't want to keep going the way I was because the porn and the alcohol were I was using it in in amounts that I never had before. And uh, so I was one of those who said, okay, send me away. I I need help. About 75% of people, when they hear it the first time, they deny it. And I tell people, don't take that the wrong way. Don't take that as defeat. You've planted a seed. And Come back in a month and talk about that seed again or start recording, you know, why you believe they're an addict or how you know they're an addict. So when you do talk to them, you can provide them with some evidence because when people are confronted with the idea of being an addict, unless they know they are, um, it's a very strange thing to hear. Um, I I went to rehab for alcoholism and still thinking I wasn't really an addict. I knew I drank too much. But I didn't think I was an addict. Um, You know, an addict, I've seen addicts, they're homeless people living on the side of a building, you know, with the same clothes for three years in a row. I wasn't an alcoholic, but I was. I found out when I, you know, did the deep dive when I went to that rehabilitation center. And I think that's what you have to kind of do is allow the person to find their own way. That doesn't, however, mean you have to sit there and take it all. If this is getting ridiculous, if, if the guy or the girl is not facing their addiction, if they're making your life miserable, you absolutely have the right to step up and say, hey, I have some boundaries and uh, you need to start looking into getting some help or you know, things are going to change around here. Maybe you'll have to sleep on the couch. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll try a trial separation, maybe whatever, whatever, whatever. So partners can lean on the addict and try to get them to go get some help and try to, you know, if nothing else, talk to a therapist for the first time, talk to a coach for the first time, talk to somebody who's been through addiction. And just to figure out, maybe you do have a problem. Maybe it is just, it is more than, oh, just a a hobby gone wrong. Maybe you do need some help with this. And there's nothing wrong with needing help. And the earlier you get help, the easier it is to get better. And just stay on that person. Don't nag them, but just stay on them. And if they get to a point where you have to draw a line in the sand, draw a line in the sand and say, you are doing this or there are boundaries. And don't try to say there are boundaries if you won't enforce them. But if it gets to the point where this person will not stop and you know you can't live with this, it's okay to say I'm going to leave you if you don't start addressing this, and then leave them. That's 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 perfectly fine because you have to watch out for yourself. And that's what I always tell the partners of the porn addicts is that this is a sick person. If you want to stick by and help, that's wonderful. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing. But you. An addict doesn't have the right to abuse you, you know, mentally, emotionally, anyway. An addict, you know, being an addict is not an excuse for bad behavior. Being an, you can't, you know, I I have very little tolerance for addicts who are lazy because I know how lazy addicts are. I was one for years and years. I know what BS artists we are because I was one for years and years. I should have had a doctorate in gaslighting and manipulation. I was really good at it because I... I, everything was in service of my addiction. Everything was about getting there. And when you discover these things about your partner, it can really rock your core. But I just urge anybody listening to recognize that their partner is sick and to try to treat them with the kind of compassion that you would want to be treated if you had a brain disease, because that's what ultimately addiction is. But like I said, you do have to balance it with looking out for yourself. You have to practice self-love. You have to practice self-care. It's a tough place to be when you're the partner of a porn addict. But uh, when you find yourself there, you just have to take it step by step.
0: This next question is a two-part question. The first part is, what can we do to keep our kids away from porn? And the second part is, what resources can people go to to get more information about porn, pornography addiction?
1: Uh, well, the first part of your question, I hate to let the parents of the world know, but um, I have been approached by so many parents after I've given a presentation or whatnot and said, yeah, we don't have to worry because we have filters on our kid's phone. And, I will be, you know, I try not to sound too smarmy, but I'll just say something like, wow, you're telling me you've locked down one of the 4.8 billion phones in the world? That kid's never going to see porn. And have you ripped all the computers and all the TVs out of your house? Because there's only several billion of those out there too. And what I try to make parents realize is that you can't keep your kids away from porn. That is silly to think you can do that in the, you know, 2020s is ridiculous. It is not a matter of if your child is going to see porn. It's a matter of when we know that boys see porn for the first time at eight or nine, often become regular viewers, 10, 11, 12 years old. Girls see porn for the first time, usually at 10 years old, and they are starting to uh, consume it in numbers that we've never seen before because everybody now has equal access. You sit in front of your computer, you sit in front of your phone, everybody has access to this stuff. And just because you lock down your kid's phone, you lock down your kid's laptop, well, what happens when your kid is riding the bus to school and the person next to them who doesn't have a lockdown phone Holds up the latest stuff from Pornhub or, or one of these other websites. And you know, what happens when they are at a friend's house at a sleepover and they're flipping around the channels and somebody hits the pay-per-view button and a porn porn comes on. You know, what is your kid going to say? What is your kid going to do? Um, if you don't know those answers, you haven't done any porn proofing, all you've done with those filters is allow yourself the false sense of security by sticking your head in the sand. A filter is never going to stop anything. And I I tell parents that the pornography speech about not watching pornography, it has to be done in, in many stages. It has to be age appropriate, but it also is not the birds and the bees speech. You don't need to talk about specifically what's in the pornography at any graphic level. That would scare a lot of little kids, but it's okay to tell a five-year-old kid, hey, um, I just want you, if you're ever using a phone or using a computer or watching TV, or you're with a friend and doing that, and you happen to see people without their clothes on, um, can you let me know? Because little kids aren't supposed to watch that stuff. Um, It's not good for little kids. And I want to make sure I protect you. So if you ever see that stuff, can you let me know? And... The kid will say yes, and the kid will probably comply because little kids, especially, they want to do the right thing. They want direction, and you know, maybe at six years old, um, you tell them, you know, uh, well, I have to tell you, you don't ever let anybody take a picture of you in your underwear or without any of your clothes on. But also, you can't take pictures of anybody in their underwear or without their clothes on, and. These are the small lessons that can be taught along the way that will ultimately be, if not an anti-porn message, at least a think about what you're doing message um, and uh, think about um, how you're using this stuff, you know. We don't allow smoking in this house. We don't allow drinking in this house. I'm not going to be able to stop you when you're 18 or 21 and you're an adult living on your own. But right now, the rules of this house are none of these kinds of pictures or none of these kinds of movies in our house. That's the speech. It's not about how babies are made. It's not about sex. It's not about your use of pornography. It's about none of that. It's about just letting a kid know that this can be dangerous and you don't approve of it. And will they still look? Of course, at some point they will. A kid going through puberty is going through so many changes, including being attracted to somebody and whatever they choose to be attracted to, guy, girl, or you know something in the middle, they uh, they are going to be curious sexually about the other person's body, about, you know, different things like that. That's normal. That's healthy sexuality. Healthy sexuality isn't looking at pictures of people that you're attracted to for three, four hours when you're 14 years old. Um, And that's what needs to be shared. At 12, 13 years old, I think we can get a little more graphic with our, uh, our boys and our girls, especially if they are, most of them are regularly watching porn already at that point. You know, let's equip them with education. You know, that's the problem is that we are an ignorant society when it comes to this. And the thing that has always overcome, it's not money being thrown at a problem. It's not a bunch of well-meaning people picketing or or, uh, protesting. The thing that changes the world, the thing that changes people is education. And we need to educate our youngest people about how to either properly use porn or why they should stay away from porn, but they need to have the information um, to make the best decisions for themselves. And I believe that when given proper information, most people do make the right decisions. And as far as your second half, on resources, um, I would just tell you to go to my website because there's a ton there. Um, There is access to my books and my coaching if you're interested in any of that stuff, but I do have pages of resources. Um, if you think that you want to learn more about porn addiction, or if you do have a porn addiction or are questioning it, but don't know how to go about getting help, and the idea of going to a therapist or a coach kind of scares you, or the idea of going to a 12-step meeting like Sexaholics Anonymous or Sex Addicts Anonymous, if these things scare you, you know, there there are online forums. There are other people you can go see. There are you can get do a ton of research. Um, I tried to show that there are many many ways to get sober from porn addiction. And I give a ton of different ways that you can do it and a ton of links. I also have answers to some questions on there that get asked frequently. So I think it's a good starting point for people when it comes to porn addiction. Um, and that website is P that's the letter P addictrecoverycom recovery.com. P Um, you should find something there that will help you. And if you can't, or if you have more questions, just drop me an email. You know, I'm not gonna charge anybody to answer a couple questions or send an email. Um, you know, I wanna be able to help people. I wanna be able to be a resource for people the way that I didn't have a resource. Um, and that's that's kind of just my penance. That's my way of giving back to the world because I hurt a lot of people with my addiction. And now if I can help more people than I hurt, maybe overall, this was, this was a good thing.
0: Well, for those out there who feel as if they might be struggling, give us some, give us some signs too, that people can kind of.
1: Yep. And, and this is true with all addiction. Um, pretty much 95% of addiction, as far as what goes on in the brain is exactly the same. Um, obviously if you're a food addict, you're gonna get fat. If you smoke, you can get cancer. Um, there are different side effects to these uh, different addictions. With porn addiction, as with any other addiction, there are a few telltale signs. First is that you begin to actually ask yourself if you have issues. You know if you're asking yourself, do I have a porn it- problem? The answer is probably yes, or at least you're starting to have one. And I always tell people this, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, but I say, do you have an addiction to, get, to vacuuming? Like, no. Well, do you think you vacuum too much? No. Do you ever even question it? No, it's like that's because nobody is addicted to vacuuming so nobody questions themselves about that. But if you're questioning yourself about your use of pornography, or any substance, that indicates it, that, that you may want to look deeper at this. And then there are, other, there are other signs such as you start to plan your day around your addiction. You know, I could tell you the two times a day that I was going to drink. I could tell you when I was going to look at pornography. And my entire day was spent just, you know, kind of waiting to do those two things. Despite the fact I was a busy guy, that was always the payoff, you know, at the end of the day for me. Um, Also, do you develop rituals around your use? Now, I remember you know, using the internet um, when it first came out, at, right after I got out of high school was when we all got on America Online for the first time if I hear the old sound of one of those modems, kind of sounds like the fax machine now, um, it reminds me of sitting down and looking at porn back then. It reminds me, it brings me back to one of my old apartments and how I would bring my laptop, one of the first laptops that was made over to the couch. And I had to have the cord plugged into the wall because we didn't have wireless then. And there was a whole routine and even up to right until before I uh, got into, got into uh, rehab, I would pour myself a giant glass of Red Bull and tequila and I would put, you know, certain things on TV and I would always sit down with my uh, laptop in the same spot on the couch. And it's, it's these little things. When you have rituals, that shows you have routines and routines can easily turn into habits. Habits turn into bad habits. Bad habits turn into compulsions and compulsions become addictions. Um, That's kind of the road you go on and people start realizing when it's a bad habit that there may be a problem. If you can nip it in the bud, then that's great. Um, And the other, another big telltale sign, and this is often if you're looking for it in other people, porn addiction is one of those things that's, it's hard to tell, you know, people knew that I had a drinking problem because I would slur my words. I would walk a little bit funny. I would smell like booze. You can't hide being an alcoholic most of the time, especially if you're doing it in public. Um, But you can easily hide porn addiction. Although if you can look at your partner or look at whoever you're suspecting and look at how their life and the things they are doing are changing, do they no longer hang out with friends like they used to? Do they not engage in activities? You know, let's play an online RPG game. Uh, I can't tonight. I'm doing something else. You know, addicts start to replace what were healthy, good activities with their addiction, because that's often where they have the extra time in their day. They have to go to work, you know. They have to eat, but they don't have to go to the gym for thirty minutes. They don't have to go out to eat with a friend. They can go home and use pornography, and that's a sign when when people start uh, giving up on the activities that they enjoyed prior to addiction, um, that they may have a problem. And those are the those are the early phases of addiction um, with, with, uh, pornography. And, you know, and like I said, to, if you think you have a problem out there, uh, talk to somebody, you know, it, you may not have a, we may not have a, an addiction. You may have a compulsion. You may have a bad habit. You may be able to just tweak a few things in your life and, and you're okay, but maybe you also have what's going to turn into a nasty, nasty addiction. And if you can stop it now, that's great. But you'll never know until you talk to a therapist, till you talk to a coach, till you talk to a recovering addict who has been there, who knows what happens, who has seen people, who can give you a baseline and tell you where you are. You know, you don't know how much of an addict you are of anything. I and mean, we see some of our friends, or at least I do, who can't get off their phones at all. And it's like, dude, we're trying to have lunch here. We're trying to watch a movie. And they are addicted to their phone, even if they don't realize it. Um, that is something that, you know, a lot of people, well, I don't think I'm an addict because I'm not this, or I'm not that well, you, you may not be a full-blown addict, but you may be developing a problem that will turn into addiction. So if you have any questions, talk to somebody who can say to you, Hey, I've been there or Hey, I've talked to 500 other people in your position as part of my, my coaching or my therapy practice. Um, and, and they can, these are the experts. These are the people who know what they're talking about. This area is still so understudied. We still don't have enough information about what's going on with porn addiction that when you can talk to an expert, when you can find an expert, ask them about you know the, the, the concerns you have the fears you have um, find them there are a million of them online help you know you you want to talk for 10 minutes and tell me about your porn problem and I can tell you if I think you need more help um, drop me an email and I'll do that for every one of your listeners if they have that as, as, as an issue. Because I've been there, I've seen it a million times, and I've seen sometimes where it's not porn addiction. Um, it's it's kind of funny. I'll tell you, Curtis, that um, I'll get a let's say a, a wife contacts me and says, "Oh, I saw one of your podcasts, or I read one of your books. I know that my husband is a porn addict. Will you please, please talk to him uh, if I can set up an appointment?" And it's like, "Yeah, absolutely." And then he will sit down with me, and I'll say, "Okay, did your wife force you to be here?" And it's always yes, and it's like, okay that's cool. Uh, she says, you have an addiction. Why don't we tell tell me about your use? And assuming they're telling me the truth, because I can't run a polygraph you know, through Zoom, uh, assuming they're telling me the truth, probably 25% of the time, the person isn't an addict. Uh, they may be a horrible husband, they may be a horrible boyfriend, but they're not actually scientifically medically addicted to anything. And that sometimes is is disappointing for the partner who wishes that their their partner had a medical problem and not just that they didn't care you know if i've I've caught him masturbating to porn so many times and i've said no more and you can't do this and this hurts me and i caught him doing it again will you talk to him and then i talked to him it's like this this guy doesn't have any addiction whatsoever he just doesn't care what she thinks that's not addiction And that's unfortunately where a lot of people are in this country now. She may have the betrayal trauma, she may have some problems because of his porn use, and he may have no idea that he has a problem or he may actually not have a problem you need to talk to the experts to figure this out it's one phone call it's one it's one sit down in front of a therapist locally whatever it is this is your health this is just as important as every other aspect you know addiction is a is is a facet of mental health if you'll take care of your other mental health needs take care of any potential addiction any particular, any particular compulsion needs because if somebody tells you well you're very compulsive That's just a short cab ride from addiction. And you really want to be careful of that. Um, And and, and that's what I advise people to do is just talk to people who know their stuff. Um, You cannot self-diagnose if you are not familiar with what to even look for. Um, And you also can't say it's not a problem if you don't know what to look for. Talk to somebody who does um, and hey, you know what? Best case scenario, There's nothing wrong with you. Worst case scenario, you caught a problem that you can now deal with and you can make better. Because if I can get over a 24 year porn addiction while I was also getting over an alcohol addiction, if I can do this, anybody can.
0: Well, let's talk about some current upcoming or current projects that you have that people need to know about. And also, Give out your social media links. I know you gave out your website.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I I thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's my whole brand is basically P Addict Recovery. If you want to find me on on Twitter or Instagram, and I'm always up updating Instagram, uh, it's it's just at P Addict Recovery. Um, if you want to email me, paddictrecovery at gmail.com. Uh, as far as projects, I am setting up a TikTok um, by the end of November. Um, I have noticed, and in talking to fellow coaches, that uh, trauma and betrayal trauma clients seem to be getting younger. And most of my betrayal trauma clients are probably between 35 and 50, but there's, I think there's a lot of people who are missing that the fact that younger younger men younger women can have a lot of trauma and need to deal with it so i'm going to try to start putting out some tiktok content i'm excited about that because i haven't taken on a new piece of social media in years um so that, that'll be interesting um you know come look for me and see if i flame out wonderfully um sometimes watching a car crash is just as fun as watching somebody succeed um and i am also uh i have begun the very beginning process of uh my, starting my next book i am co-writing this book with a therapist out of california um and we have just signed paperwork so my guess is that won't come out till the end of 2022 or maybe early 2023 but i'm real excited about that that would be my uh, fourth book and you can get all my books on amazon if you're interested um, and then um, I'm also excited because uh, we're starting to see places like colleges, places like churches, libraries, rotary clubs, this kind of thing. We are starting to see uh, these groups and these organizations bring speakers back to talk to people live. And, you know, while it's great to have TV and and podcasts and radio, I don't think there's anything like standing across from somebody, even if they're on a stage and they're talking to 500 people, I think there's a real connection there. And I've done many of those uh, kinds of presentations, you know, groups from five to 500 and, um, I haven't been able to do those very much the last two years because of the pandemic, and I'm really looking forward of getting back in front of people. I know there'll only be a few opportunities in the spring. Most of it won't start till fall of 2022, but uh, I really am looking forward, especially to getting in front of college kids. Um, I really i feel like i connect with them i can speak their language and uh, they'll take me seriously because i was there and i think that's a big piece of it is that i was there not only do i know my statistics i know my experience and i try to keep it as totally real for uh young kids because young kids can sniff out bs better than anybody um so those are things going on now and it's just you know keep going forward Talk to as many people who will listen to me as possible. You know, keep trying to do the coaching and work with people one on one. I, I feel better about my life now, and I feel healthier at forty-five years old than I felt at thirty-five or that I felt at twenty-five. Um, I know I wasn't supposed to be a journalist or a or a magazine editor or, you know, any of the any of those things that I thought I was professionally supposed to be. I realize now that you know. God Allah, the creator, whatever you want to call them. Um, I realize now that, you know, whatever the, that force in the universe is, it put me through all of that stuff. So I could come out on this side and help people and make a difference. And I am just going to keep doing that as long as it makes sense. As long as, you know, I keep getting a little bit of money here and there for doing some of these things so I can keep a roof over my head. Um, I, I, feel like my life has purpose and, uh, it except for being a a husband and a father, I didn't have that much in my old life. And uh, it's great to have that feeling now. So ultimately, I'm going to chase this great feeling.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, paddictrecovery.com. Please be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible, especially people that are struggling. We could uh, help somebody and save somebody's life. Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Joshua Shea, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: And thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to speak to your listeners. So many people are still afraid to talk about this issue. And while I do have my story, um, you do have the platform. So I I thank you from the bottom of my heart for letting me... uh, use your platform to get this message out
0: for more information on the living the dream podcast visit www.djcurveball.com until next time stay focused on living the dream dream